Well, good morning. Will you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21? If you're using the, uh, the paperback, the, yeah, the children are dismissed, yeah. Uh, if, if, if you're using the, the, the paperback uh, pew Bible, it's page 916. And we're going to work through a, a story this morning that is often called the triumphal entry, but I think a better title might be the not-so-triumphal entry, because as we'll see, it isn't really that triumphant at all. It's, it's actually a bit of a letdown. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Matthew, and uh, I'm really glad, grateful to continue with the series this morning. Last week, Matt Sear led us through the rest of chapter 20, and today we're in chapter 21. So let's do this. We'll start by reading the story, uh, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll go back and take a look at it more closely. It says in 21, verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, we, we face, it seems like in this country we're facing elections all the time. As soon as we're done with one election cycle, then we have a new election cycle coming on. And with all those, all those pesky radio and television election commercials. And, and the question always is, who should we accept as our leader? And the answer to that question depends on how we diagnose the problems. Who we want to fix the problems depends on what we think the problems are. And in this chapter, the question is, should we accept Jesus or not? Is he going to be solving the problems that we think he should be solving? The passage comes at a critical point in the book of Matthew. The first 20 chapters of the book of Matthew, from chapter 1 to chapter 20, cover 33 years of time. Jesus' miraculous birth, his baptism, his teaching, and his parables, and his miracles. He has announced that he is going to be killed and raised to life again. And his disciples aren't so sure what they think about that, but they're, they're willing to go along with it. And then he turns his face toward Jerusalem. He's up in Galilee, up in the north, and he turns toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the cultural and political and religious capital of the nations. And the, the Jewish leaders who have, who have been coming up to Galilee to test him and to resist him and to try and cause trouble for him have come from Jerusalem. And when Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem, his, his disciples say, what? Uh, that's where the Jews are who are trying to kill you. We're going there. And Jesus says, we're going there. Because his whole life and his whole ministry have been directed to this moment. 
when he comes to Jerusalem to accomplish the task that the Father has for him. And at this point, once he arrives in Jerusalem, Matthew begins to slow down to get into more detail, and he starts to uh, cover uh, less time with more chapters. At this point, from chapter 21 to chapter 28, from the time Jesus enters Jerusalem until he rises from the dead, it only covers one week of time because this is the climax of the book of Matthew. And this is the climax, in fact, of all of the Bible and all of world history. This is the point upon which everything turns. Every person, every kingdom, every event that the world has ever, ever known, this is Jesus in Jerusalem. So let's look at this story. It seems like a simple story at first, but there's a lot going on here. Look back at verse 1. It says, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. See, they've made their way down from Galilee. It's been a long distance over many, many days of walking. He stopped along the way to teach and to do some miracles. And they've come to the outskirts of Jerusalem to a series of these small villages. There in Bethphage, nearby is Bethany, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jerusalem is up in the hill country, and it's surrounded on three sides by deep valleys. And then on the other side of those valleys are hills. And on the east side of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. And up on the Mount of Olives is this little village that Jesus and his followers were coming to as they made their way to Bethlehem. As they come to the outskirts of that little village, Jesus tells his disciples, okay, in verse 2, okay, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So he gives his disciples some very specific instructions. And he says in verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Here's, where we, here's, here's our first little stop where we think, well, this is a little bit odd because a donkey was worth a lot of money. This would be a little bit like, like Jesus saying to one of his disciples, uh, go into Kenosha and at the pick and save, you will see a BMW parked there. Bring it to me. And, the, and if the owner is there standing by his car, then you just simply say to the owner, Jesus needs this, and he'll hand you the keys. And the disciples say, uh, well, a BMW costs, you know, maybe $40,000. And Jesus will be like, that's okay, he'll, he'll send it along. So, so Matthew doesn't tell us how this worked. He doesn't tell us if, if this was a miracle and Jesus knew that the donkeys would be there, and he's, he's miraculously causing the guy to just give up not only one donkey, but two, just simply by being asked for it, or, or if Jesus had set this up in advance somehow and, and uh, arranged this in advance. We're just not told by that, but we know that Jesus is being very specific about what he has in mind here. And the point is that Jesus is not just tired and he's walking along and, oh, there's a donkey by this side of the road. I, I think I'll just hop on that for a little while. He's doing something very intentional here. There, there, are, there are these animals, and he is causing his disciples to go and get them. Now, another reason that this is unusual is because this is the only time in the entire book of Matthew or any of the Gospels where Jesus rides on an animal. He walked everywhere, or if he was up at the Sea of Galilee, he rode a boat. In fact, he had walked from Galilee 
to these villages outside of Jerusalem, 100 miles, all the way down there, and now he only has one mile to go. So if he has already walked 100 miles, why does he need a donkey for just that last mile? That seems strange. And in fact, it's even stranger than that. because we're, we're so familiar with this story that we don't often think about this, but everyone else would have been walking into Jerusalem. In fact, there was a Jewish tradition that if you were a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem for one of the feast days, you were supposed to walk and not ride on an animal. So all of the rest of the crowd, all of these pilgrims coming from different parts of, of Israel would have been coming to Jerusalem, and they all would have been walking, and here would be Jesus, the only one sitting on a donkey riding into the city. Talk about drawing attention to yourself. And then, as his disciples had said, Jerusalem was not the safest place for him. Jerusalem was where everyone was looking for him to try and kill him. So instead of Jesus and his disciples just sort of blending in with the crowd, pulling their hood over their face and sort of keeping their heads down and going into the city that way. Instead, Jesus props himself up on a donkey. He's the only one, and here he comes. Talk about conspicuous. He's intentionally drawing, drawing people's focus to himself. Now, in verse 4, Matthew tells us that Jesus is doing this as a symbol to make a claim about himself in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He doesn't ride a donkey because he's tired of walking. He rides a donkey because he is making a claim about himself through the symbolism that most Jews who knew their Bibles would have instantly recognized. And we may not know the significance of riding a donkey into Jerusalem, so Matthew helps us out a little bit. And in verse 5, he quotes from the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is triggering here. He says in verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And Matthew says in verse 4 that this was to fulfill what had been said by the prophet. The prophet Zechariah had predicted that Jerusalem's king would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and now Jesus is riding into town on a donkey to fulfill that prediction, to realize what Zechariah had foretold some 500 years before. Would you turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 9.9? 9? Why don't you hold your finger in Matthew 21? It's only a few pages back. You've got to go back into the Old Testament before Matthew, then through Malachi, just a short book, and in to the book of Zechariah. So Matthew, and then go back to Malachi, and then go back to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let's look at that. When New Testament authors like Matthew quote from Old Testament prophets like Zechariah, they usually have in mind more than just that verse. They usually have in mind more than just that one statement. Usually, they have in mind the entire context of the Old Testament prophet. When they cite an Old Testament prophecy, people like Matthew are connecting the two passages together. They're connecting Matthew 21 and Zechariah 9.9, and they're inviting us to go back to Zechariah 9 and to look at the entire passage there and all the ideas that are back there in Zechariah chapter 9. And then they invite us to import all of those ideas from that Old Testament passage back into the book of Matthew. Think, think about something like a hyperlink. 
Think about when you're on a web page and you see a, a, a sentence underlined and you know that that's a hyperlink on the internet. It's not just that hyperlink that's in view. You're supposed to click that link and you go to an entire web page and that web page is supposed to inform what you're reading on the first one. Think, think about this example. Let's say that it's in mid-December and my friend is really being anti-Christmas and so I say to him, look, don't be a Scrooge. Well, I'm obviously alluding to the character Scrooge in Charles Dickens, A Christmas Character. But then, why don't I just say to my friend, don't be grumpy? Isn't it just the same thing to say to someone, don't be grumpy, as it is to say to them, don't be a Scrooge? It's not the same thing, not at all, because when I call him Scrooge, I'm making a connection to Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, and I'm importing all of the associations from that book all at once and directing them at my friend. I'm calling my friend a miserly, isolated man who doesn't care about people in need. I'm calling him a man who doesn't just ignore Christmas, but he hates it and ruins it for everyone else around him. I'm saying that my friend has fundamental flaws and blind spots. And I'm, I'm referring to my friend as someone who everyone else fears and avoids because of his sour attitude. Right? When, I call myself, when I call my friend Scrooge, I'm importing all of those associations from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol in that one statement. It's very, actually very efficient communication. When Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9.9, it's like, it's like a, a link on a web page, and it's like Matthew is saying, I'm not just bringing this here for your convenience. I'm inviting you to go back to Zechariah and check that out. So let's do that. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah was a prophet in the time after the exile. God had punished his people by sending them into a foreign land, and when he had brought them back from exile, even though it was a time of temporary restoration, it was a time that was very difficult. The Persian Empire, who ruled them, was incredibly unstable. Emperors kept dying, they kept dying in battle, and every time an emperor would die, these little revolts and rebellions would rise up, and the Persian Empire would send their military there and stamp out the revolt and kill people and burn down a city. The land of Israel was now a Persian province called Yehud, which is where we get the word Jew from. It was a much smaller territory than Israel had been before the exile. It was only about 50 square miles. There were only about 50,000 people that, owned, that, that lived in the entire province. The temple that had symbolized God's presence and sort of the headquarters of his power on earth was in ruins. There was no more priesthood. The relationship with God had been fractured. There was poverty and social problems. The people were beginning to return to their old sins. They were marrying non-believers outside of the community. The leaders were oppressive and corrupt. False prophets were rising. Everyone was marked by incredible immorality. They were abusing the poor and taking advantage of those people in need. And this was supposed to be the restoration from exile. And so everyone is sitting around thinking, what? What hope is there for us? What hope is there for the future? What, what could God's plan possibly be moving forward? We are the people of God, but we are mired as the nobody subjects of the mighty Persian Empire, just out of the way and just crumbling and decay. 
What hope could God possibly have for his people in the future? And then Zechariah comes along and he announces that the coming kingdom of God is yet in the future. That God is in charge of the world and he calls his people to repentance and into relationship with himself and someday he is coming to defeat the enemies of his people and to rule over a peaceful earth everywhere and he is going to set everything right. And this was the message of Zechariah. And throughout the book of Zechariah, there is a focus on Jerusalem. In chapter 1, he says, God is going to restore Jerusalem. In chapter 2, he says, God is going to restore Jerusalem. In chapter 4 in Zechariah, he says, God is going to rebuild the temple. And that is going to be a symbol of his relationship with you. In chapter 6, he says, God is going to rebuild the temple. And in chapter 8, he says, God is going to dwell in Jerusalem, and someday all the peoples of the earth will be pilgrims to Jerusalem, and they will come to worship God in Jerusalem. Because the temple is the place of God's special presence and power, unlike anywhere else on earth. It's his headquarters. And so the Old Testament prophets state that at the end of time, God is going to again take up residence in Jerusalem, and all the peoples of the earth will come there to worship him. And so when we get to Zechariah chapter 9, th this is all in the background. Look what it says in Zechariah chapter 9. In verses 1 through 8, God, the mighty warrior, is coming to make war on his enemies. And he marches from north to south down the coastland of the Mediterranean Sea, laying waste to his enemies. He starts in verse 1 with Hadrach and Damascus. You see that? Zechariah 9.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, for the, eye has an, the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Just like an ancient ruler, or even a modern day one for that matter, has his eye on his subjects, looking for whoever might be opposed to him, or any rebellion that might be starting up. The Lord has his eye on all mankind. He rules over the entire earth. He is everywhere, and he knows everything, and he has total control of everything, not just of Israel, but on all mankind. And he starts up in Syria, up in Damascus. He starts in the north in, in Syria, the, the ancient Israel, uh, enemies of Israel, and he begins to work against them and to defeat them. And then in verse 2, he moves south down to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were major enemies of Israel as well. They, they had a reputation of being so powerful and so wealthy. Look what it says in verse 2. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, they were cultured and significant and intelligent. Not only that, but they were well fortified. Look at verse 3. Tyre has built herself a rampart. Tyre was well known because they had a fortress in the ocean. And it was so difficult to attack that fortress in the middle of the ocean, that one time Nebuchadnezzar with the mighty Babylonian army came to attack Tyre and he put it under siege for 13 years and then he limped home. He was unable to conquer them, so they became very proud. They thought they were invulnerable to attack. And not only that, look at the rest of verse 3. They have heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Not only are they well fortified, but they are wealthy but look what it says in verse 4. Behold, the Lord will strip Tyre of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by 
fire. Think about some of the enemies of God. Think about some of the enemies in our own world who are opposed to God and to Christ. Institutions in our own culture, governments across the world who are well-resourced, intelligent. We sometimes wonder, is there any hope? Is there any hope against institutions like that? There is. He moves from Tyre after demolishing Tyre down to verse 5 in Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron. These are the cities of the Philistines, ancient Israel, uh, enemies of Israel. He says Ashkelon will be afraid and Gaza will writhe in anguish and Ekron also because its hopes are confounded. Look at verse 8. Then I will encamp at my temple, my house, as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So God is coming as the warrior from Aram and Syria to, the, to, the, to Tyre and Sidon, to the Philistines, and then he comes to encamp at Jerusalem, at his temple. That is his place. Those are his people, and he is the powerful God. His eyes are on Jerusalem, and he will cleanse it, and he will protect it, and he is going to make sure that nothing is ever the same again. And then he says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now it is time for celebration. Rejoice. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God is going to establish his rule on earth through this special messianic king. Zion is another name for the Temple Mount. That is the symbol of God's presence and power. He says that this king in verse 9 is going to be humble. But humble doesn't mean wimpy. Humble means dependent upon God. That the king is going to be victorious because he, because God has his back. And he's mounted on a donkey, which at, at first glance, that seems a little odd, because maybe we would like him to be mounted on a mighty stallion, or maybe a war horse. That would be much more impressive than a donkey. But there's a long tradition in the Bible that a donkey means royalty. In Genesis 49, a donkey was a part of the blessing of Judah, who was in the Messianic line. David rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, Solomon rode on a donkey when he was going to be made king. A donkey in the ancient world symbolized wealth and royalty and respect. And here comes the king of Zion after God has laid waste to his enemies riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then he concludes, look what he says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off he is going to destroy the weapons. He is going to bring peace. Look what he says in verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 14, at the end of the book, God announces that he will be king over all the earth and Jerusalem will be safe and secure and everyone who survives in all the nations will go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the God of hope. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. You can flip back to where you've got your finger. All that is in the background and all that is being triggered by Jesus getting on a donkey. 
Matthew has imported by relating this story, and Jesus has imported by climbing on that donkey, all that Zechariah had prophesied about this coming king, the victory of God over his enemies and the restoration of his people. And interestingly, in Matthew, the next thing that Jesus is going to do is go into the temple and cleanse it. Fascinating. He is playing out the script that Zechariah had predicted. When Jesus climbs on that donkey and rides into Jerusalem in the full sight of everyone, he says, I am the king. I am the king that was foretold in the book of Zechariah. Before this, Jesus had always kept his identity a secret. Remember that? He healed a leper, and after he healed the leper, he's like, don't, don't tell anyone. He healed two blind men. He said, make sure no one knows about this. I don't want anyone to know who I am. It says later that Jesus healed many people, and he told them all, don't don't tell people who I am. I'm not ready for that yet. When the disciples went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus glorified and the voice from heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, don't tell anyone about this. Not yet. But now, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, he climbs on a donkey and he makes a statement in full view of everyone, in full view of the city of Jerusalem, I am the king. I am the one that the Old Testament people of God were waiting for to transform and restore them. I am the king who will do battle with the enemies of God's people and vanquish them. I am the king who demands your worship and allegiance. I am the king of all the earth, over all nations and all peoples. I am the son of David, the Messiah. That is his intention in climbing on a donkey. So now in verses 6 through 11 in Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and what we're going to see is two different reactions to him from the people. It says in verse 6, the disciples brought the young colt and its mother. They put their clothes on them. There were no, there was no saddle. They put their clothes on the donkey, and Jesus sat on the young colt that had never been ridden before. The mother was probably there to give comfort because it's a busy, crowded place, and the donkey was probably nervous. The colt was, the colt was nervous. And as Jesus begins to go into Jerusalem, we see the first of two responses. First of all is the crowd of people who are entering Jerusalem with Jesus. They had probably come also from Galilee. They were entering Jerusalem with Jesus. They were fellow pilgrims of his, and they knew Jesus already. They had heard of him. And there were people walking in front of Jesus and people walking behind Jesus as he, as he makes his way into Jerusalem. And they begin an extravagant celebration. They're pulling their clothes off and throwing them on the road. They're cutting down palm branches and laying them like a red carpet for the king. And as they go along in this procession into Jerusalem, these people from Galilee are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The phrase son of David is a clear messianic reference. And the rest of what they say comes from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm about the king leading pilgrims into Jerusalem. So they aren't just calling Jesus a king, they're calling him the king. This is the Messiah that they have been waiting for, foretold by the prophets. Their response isn't done yet. We'll come back to them. But in the meantime, we go to group number two. That's the Galileans. We'll go to the people of Jerusalem, group number two, in verse 10. And it says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Stirred up 
isn't a fantastic translation because what that word stirred up means is terrified. They were terrified. They were shaking. When they saw Jesus coming up the hill on the donkey and all the people coming into the city with him shouting, shouting, it's the Messiah, it's the son of David, save us. They were like, oh no, oh no, what's happening here? They were shaking and terrified and they said, who is this? And then the crowds who were entering with Jesus will go back to group number one. Then they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, that's an odd thing to say. It's odd for two reasons. First of all, they call him a prophet, which is a bit inadequate, given what they were just shouting on the road. That's a little bit inadequate. And second, look what they say. They say he's from Nazareth of Galilee. There was tension between the people of Jerusalem and the people of Galilee. You know, in our culture, it's this way, too. You know, I, I like to listen to country music, and you know, in country music, there's all, these, there's all these songs about how the city is bad, the city is dangerous, the country is better. Then the people in the city think that people in the country are weirdos and that they're simpletons. And the people in L.A. and in California talk about Nebraska as flyover country. So there's this tension between the people in the city and the people in the country, right? Even in our own culture a little bit. And that's how it was back then. There was tension, political and cultural tension, between the people in Jerusalem, who thought they were kind of big stuff, and the people of Galilee who were kind of in the flyover country. And so when the people of Jerusalem say, who, who is this? Who is this? Who's coming to our city? Then the people of Galilee say, he's from Nazareth. He's from He's from Galilee. He's, he's one of ours. We got this. See, they're claiming him. They, they like that. They like the prestige. They like that this, that this guy coming into town on a donkey, he's from, he's from Galilee. We got this. And so this triumphal entry is a little bit of a dud because Jesus climbs on this donkey and at first everyone's saying all the right things. They're quoting scripture. They're saying it's the Messiah, it's the Messiah, it's the Messiah. But once he gets into the city, then one group says, uh, I'm, I like the sound of this, it kind of terrifies me. And the other group is sort of claiming him in some sort of turf war. And then the story ends. And it's just, a, it's just kind of a dud. It's not a triumphal entry, it's a not-so-triumphal entry. Interesting. So the story revolves, when you think about the story as a whole, it revolves around one key contrast, and that is the contrast between who Jesus is versus who everybody wants him to be. On the one hand, Jesus makes a clear claim to be the king foretold in Zechariah. In that passage, he rules for a conquering God who defeats his enemy and saves his people in victory. And he brings peace by trusting in God's plan. But then on the other hand, there are these groups of people who have two different, two different perspectives about who he is and what they want from him. Let's look at those. First of all, the crowd with Jesus. They shout and cheer and throw their clothes, and then, but then when they're asked who he is, they say, well, he's on our team. They're looking only for glory. 
Maybe they feel marginalized or they don't have the same kind of influence that Jerusalem has. They're, they're from that flyover country. And this is their chance. This is their chance to be somebody. Maybe, Jeru- maybe Jesus can raise their status, raise their political profile, kind of put them on the map a little bit. But Jesus is not coming to take sides. He's not coming to gather support in local politics. He hasn't arrived in Jerusalem to settle disputes or to raise up one particular constituency. He is coming to Jerusalem to die on a cross. He is in Jerusalem for suffering and for humiliation. There will be a crown, but it will be a crown of thorns. There will be worshipers, but they will be soldiers pretending to bow down to him to make fun of him. He will accomplish his goal, but that is going to be his own death as a sacrifice. And then later, then later he will come back in victory to vindicate his people and ruin his enemies forever. But that's later. So this first group of people, the people of Galilee, they want him to be king, but, but that's for them. That's so that he can solve some of the local problems that they have. The other group is the people of Jerusalem. They don't recognize Jesus. You know, they say, you know, you get so many people coming to Jerusalem for Passover. You get so many people, I don't know. They don't recognize the claims that he's making. But the fact that everyone is proclaiming Jesus as the king, that's just going to cause trouble. That's going to rock the boat. That's going to mess up the status quo. I mean, think about it. Things with Rome are sensitive. It's a delicate political balance. You, you, You cause too much of a too much, you stir things up too much, here come the Roman soldiers. They're going to kill some people, they're going to throw some people in jail, they're going to clamp down on the freedoms of the people in Jerusalem. There's, there's this uneasy balance, and the people of Jerusalem are like, oh great, we're calling him a king, this is, just gonna, this is just going to upset the status quo. I mean, things are already bad, but they could be a lot worse in our relationship with Rome. But the problem for these people is that Jesus is coming to rock the boat. He's coming to call people into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that is going to require, on their part, a new allegiance. The people in Jerusalem need to let go of their political power, of their political structures, of the influence that they have, of their nice, neat, tidy little lives. They need to let go of those uneasy alliances that they've formed. And they need to join the king. The irony is that Jesus is their true victorious messianic king coming into Jerusalem, and Rome is their oppressive ruler, but they're so afraid that Jesus is going to get them in trouble with Rome, they're like, you know what, no, no. And so the people from Jerusalem are ultimately, in just just a couple of days, are going to kill Jesus in order to avoid all that trouble. In the book of John, in chapter 19, Pilate says to the chief priest, shall I crucify your king? And the people of Jerusalem say, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So here I think is the main point of the story. Accept Jesus as the true king, even if he may not be what you're looking for. What do we want in a king? Someone to solve our problems, someone to lower our taxes, someone to support our values, someone to raise our status, or maybe someone to just sort of leave us alone, or who isn't going to ask very much, 
or is going to support my life as it is right now, or someone's going to let me keep what I have, my pride, my resources. But the problem is, we don't always do a very good job of knowing what our real needs are. We have bigger problems than high taxes and government corruption and terrorism. We need something a lot more significant than that. The problem is that we, di we misdiagnose what we need. We search for the wrong kind of king, and then we miss God's true king. Instead, we need to accept Jesus as the true king, even though he may not be what we were originally looking for. We need our sins forgiven. We need freedom from the destructive patterns to which we've committed ourselves. We know, if we're honest, that our own hearts are dark and that we need transformation. We need peace with God. We need hope for the future. We need hope that wherever sin is not ultimately cured, that it will be destroyed. And Jesus presents himself to us as God's king. And so here's the call of this simple story. To accept God's king instead of the one that we would make for ourselves. To repent of our sins and to repent of our old allegiances and to let go of our own kingdoms so that we can join his. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He is Christ the king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we stand on this side of the cross after you had gone to the cross and given yourself over to death, after you had raised victoriously from the grave and seated yourself at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Lord, we praise you. We praise you as our great King. And we look forward to the time you come back in the future to defeat your enemies, to destroy sin once and for all, to reign in peace and justice from sea to sea. We pray in the meantime, before, between the time of your humiliating death and your future victory, that we would follow you with all of our hearts and souls, that we would accept you, and that this passage would strengthen our faith in who you are and warn us against missing you. We accept you as our great king, and we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.